Welcome to the Meeting Explorers podcast. This is Frederick Strang. In this episode, I'm delighted to talk to New Zealand-born sailor Laura Decker, who successfully completed a solo circumnavigation in a 12.4 meter or 40 feet two-masted catch named Guppy, arriving in Simpson Bay, San Martin, 518 days later at the age of 16, breaking the record for being the youngest to single-handedly sail around the world between the years 2010 and 2012. However, her circumnavigation was not uncontroversial. A Dutch court stepped in owing to the objections of the local authorities and prevented Laura from departing while under shared custody of both her parents and suddenly she was all over the news in Holland. On the internet one could read Laura Decker is delusional, spoiled, arrogant, impulsive, unstable, insane. What an idiotic enterprise, madness and unacceptable risk. Some people even went so far to say, I hope she sinks. Decker later commented about the authorities in an interview saying, they thought it was dangerous. Well, everything is dangerous. They don't sail and they don't know what boats are and they are scared of them. Laura was born on a boat in New Zealand and spent the first five years at sea and ever since all she wants to do is return to that life. She says she loves to sail alone, well almost alone. Her dog Spot has been a welcoming partner on many of her journeys and to afford living out her passion she has done various jobs like cleaning shops, street performing on a unicycle, delivering newspapers to save every single cent so she could eventually buy her own yacht. It was then that she wondered why she would wait any longer to fulfill her dream of sailing around the world. After all, she had a seaworthy boat, some money saved up and enough skills to navigate her boat to anywhere she wanted. I'm curious to take a trip into Laura's mind. How does an adolescent navigate in the realm between fear and danger as she crosses the world in solitary? How does isolation affect her psyche? And what does she think about curling parents and governments who tries awfully hard to eradicate any risk exposure from children? Is avoiding risk by all measure perhaps the greatest risk of them all? When watching her documentary Maiden Trip, she always seems to put a juvenile and innocent smile on her face, like treating life as a gift. I'm eager to learn how she cultivates this life spark and how others can benefit from it. So, without further delay, I'll bring you Laura Decker. Welcome, Laura. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> gladly. Before I invite you to tell us about why on earth you name all the boats that you own to Guppy, your inspirational around the world voyage, and the call for the ocean. Tell us how your magnetic pull to the seas started. Um, yeah, well, for me, fairly simple. Actually, I was born during a round the world voyage of my parents. So they, uh, my dad built his own boats. My parents met during that period and they sailed around the world for seven years. And I was born during that voyage in New Zealand. So I was pretty much born on the boat. I was born in a hospital, but yeah, pretty much on the boat right away. And sailed my whole life after that that's interesting because i was born and raised in a in a place in sweden 
which is known to be the flattest part. And I wasn't dreaming about flat surfaces or forests. I was dreaming <laughs> about jagged peaks. So why wasn't it the opposite for you that you were trying to uh, repulse yourself from the oceans and venturing into mountains and something completely different? Why the oceans? Yeah, I don't know. I think you're right. Sometimes you do the complete opposite of what your family does, I guess. But for me, I, I just always had this love for the ocean. It somehow um, gives me a sense of peace and freedom and a connection to nature that, yeah, other people probably find in, in hiking or climbing peaks. Or I, I do believe it's the same feeling, that same connection that you feel to actually doing something together with nature, which is such a immense and amazingly important power, really. And if you're on a sailboat, you're so in touch with the current and the wind and the weather. And yeah, it just makes you feel so small and grateful for everything. And I, I've just always loved that. I loved it since I was a little kid, I just felt very at home. I love how you picture that. It almost feels like I'm in a painting. You have a Dutch, German, and New Zealand citizenship. Is that still correct? Um, well, I have Dutch and New Zealand passports. I don't have a German passport because I don't really allow dual citizenship. My mom is German, though, so if I would really want it, for some reason, I could probably get it. But yeah, don't really need it. Yeah, there was one episode around... Um, the world trip of yours when you went to Darwin in Australia and you changed your Dutch flag to New Zealand flag on your boat, saying that you were finished with Holland and Europe. What happened? Was this an action to get back to your roots? Um, yeah, I, I guess so in a way. So, you know, the Netherlands were never very supportive of my journey. In fact, they tried to stop it with about 10 court cases and and almost a year of battling and we uh, there was just a lot of things happening that left very bad memories to me and, and even though i know now that it's only a small portion of people who did that you know at the time it really felt like the whole country was just against me and yeah that i just didn't care i'm like that this is this is my thing i want to do this and but it still hurts, I, even if I was, when I was away, when I was in Darwin, even, they were still trying to stop me. They were still saying what a bad idea it was that I could enjoy it. I mean, I'd still more than halfway around the world and they were still saying I couldn't do it. Um, and New Zealand, on the other hand, which is very much a sailing country as well, um, was very understanding. Like They knew of my that I was born there my passport so they um they were also a bit involved and, and the people were very supportive so to me that made a huge difference it definitely made me feel so much more loved and home to new zealand than it did to the netherlands and i thought you know if a country is not going to support me in this voyage why should i even sail and have their flag behind my boat it's true i sometimes say that people who are in credulous and who are too critical they have too much free time a couple of questions about what happened in holland but before we go there i'd like to go back to your early days and you got your first boat that was an optimist dinghy that you received for your sixth birthday 
and which you promptly learned to sail solo, initially accompanied by your father on a windsurfer. Do you remember that day when you were six? Yeah, yeah, very well. Um, because I had wanted to <laughs> sail on my own for quite a while already, and this was the first day I was finally, I got on the boat and I wanted to go out straight away. And my dad said, oh, well, wait, you can't even sail. <laughs> we, we need to, first you need to learn. And I thought, no, I'm just gonna, it's gonna be fine. I'm just gonna sail away. <laughs> so he uh, took the windsurf board and, and said, okay, sure. If you think you can sail then just follow me. And I did. And of course I made mistakes and I, you know, I didn't get how I needed to sail upwind. And, uh, but eventually I did get it and I, Loved it really a lot. It was such a great time. Do you remember the um, child book, Pippi Longström, that we say in Sweden? She said that, I never tried this before, so I'm probably very good at it. Do Have you ever heard about the story of Pippi? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I think it's great. <laughs> um, you remind me of her a bit, <laughs> like being this um, person who uh, defines the status quo and... Uh, is this been a propensity? Has this been an attitude? Um, I yeah and no. I'm I'm always careful, hesitating. I definitely do doubt, and <laughs> um, I think I'm not one of these people who just jumps into everything without really thinking or just saying like, "Oh, let's just go for it." Um, the trip that I did was long planned. Like I planned it for years and really carefully thought it out and um, certain aspects definitely did scare me but not doing it at all and just you know living the life that I saw around me that scared me more <laughs> so um, for me it was worth that risk and I wanted to to do it it felt right I'm, I'm someone who just follows their heart I follow what I believe I need to do um and i strongly felt that that's what i needed to do and i can't really explain why <laughs> like now that i look back there's a million reasons why i should have done it right and and i'm super super happy that i did do it but back then it was difficult to explain people said why don't you just stay in school why don't you wait until you're 18 why does everything have to be so difficult and i couldn't really explain because they were all pretty good reasons since I also didn't really do it for the record. <laughs> I didn't really care much for that. So I, I thought, yeah, sure. But I just really somehow felt that that's what I needed to do. And so I did it, but I did think it out carefully. And um, I definitely, you know, I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it, but I definitely wanted to know. I wanted to try it out and I wanted to prepare the best I could and then just go for it. You own many boats. And all of them is named Guppy. When I was searching for the word Guppy on Google, I find a small live-bearing freshwater fish widely kept in aquariums, native to tropical America, and has been introduced elsewhere to control mosquito larvae. So is this a tropical fish that you name your boats after, or who is Guppy? Yeah, it is actually, um, hence the big colorful fish on the front. Um, I was nicknamed Guppy as a child, so because I was always very small for my age, um, but people thought I was colorful, just jumping around, doing what I wanted to do, and following my dreams, I always did that. 
Um, so they, and I was definitely loved the tropics. I, I, I was always cold. <laughs> the Netherlands definitely does not have the bright climate for me. So all that together uh, got me the nickname Guppy. And then when I got my first boat, I thought it'd be funny to call it Guppy because there'd be like a guppy on a guppy. And the, the boat was actually quite big for me at that time. So I, yeah, that that was kind of funny. And then the name just really stuck to me. Um, so then I named the next boat Guppy. And then, of course, the boat that I sailed around the world on was uh, stranded, put on a reef by uh, by Life Sail, an organization that was going to sail with kids on the boat. And because that boat is gone and stranded, I named the, the ship that we currently have Guppy as well, mostly in memory of her. For your eighth birthday in two, 2003, I think, you received the book Maiden Voyage by Tanya Ayabis' memoir of the round the world sailing trip. What imprint did that book have on your path in life? And spoilers alert, what can you tell us about the book? Um, I think I had a huge impact. It showed me that, you know, she wasn't able to sail at all when she left. So somehow it gave me a lot of encouragement that maybe I didn't need to have like 50 years of experience before I could do that. Um, but also the determination and to actually be able to do that, it really, yeah, it just opened my mind to what was possible in the world and how beautiful the world is because she writes really nicely. She writes about the mistakes, about the things that were wrong, um, about all the cultures and the people. And those were exactly the kind of things that I wanted to see and that I wanted to experience. So uh, that was very cool. I think most books in general, especially biographies, are about how good that person is and how good they did everything. Um, and I, I do believe a good biography also includes the shitty parts and uh, and what went wrong. And she definitely did that. So that, yeah, I, I really lo I still love the book. It's great. And your parents divorced in 2001. Then you decided to live with your father and after the separation and your younger sister, Kim, went to live with the mother. So looking back in the mirror, how, how was it to handle your parents' divorce? Well, it's never nice. It's, um, of course, it always has an impact. And I didn't see my mom much while growing up. And I think that was... Uh, that definitely had an impact. I, I didn't have much of a mom figure in my life. Um, uh, had to figure things out. Well, look, quite young, my dad had a full-time job and he was building a boat and he was looking after me and a dog. And um, yeah, I just stood up and decided to start cooking and cleaning up and helping my dad where I could. And I, I did that with love. Um, I really wanted to do it. And um I do remember a lot of people who said, oh, you should just go and live with mom and this isn't right. You can't just live in a shipyard. And I was just thinking, well, but I want to, you know, that's where I definitely felt home. And it was my choice to live with my dad. It's a, quite a interesting thing. I don't think a lot of parents do it like that, but they let me choose who I wanted to live with. And my sister went to the other person. So, but we didn't see other much after that and that was yeah of course as an impact i do have a very good relationship with my mom now though <laughs> and um, as you got older you realized how you were getting further away from your schoolmates and did not fit in um, i somehow can relate to that 
What changed in you during that time? Well, I think I was always different uh, because we <laughs> lived on a boat and on a shipyard and uh, both of my parents are a bit alternative thinking, I think, in lifestyle anyway, because they have traveled so much and uh, did a journey likewise. And so they've always followed their own minds and their own ideas, which is what I grew up with as well, with this strong belief that I needed to be myself. And um, in schools, especially or probably in society in general, it's uh, quite normal to just follow each other, or follow the trends. We're like sheep. And I I just didn't fit in because I did my thing. So I never followed the trends. I was never in fashion. I was never doing what the other kids were doing. And at some stage, you just get further and further away. And I kept learning. I kept discovering who I was and what I wanted to do. Whereas most of my peers, most of my age group were staying stuck in whatever trends and fashions and whatever things they were talking about and parties. And yeah, I was just not interested. Was it hard not following the stream? For me, it wasn't. Um, but that's me. <laughs> I know for a lot of people it is. I know a lot of people who would like to not follow the stream and find it very difficult. But in no, some you know the I had these urges where I thought, oh man, everyone is being so mean to me because you know I'm not wearing the right clothing or it's not the right color. I don't have a fancy backpack, and I did get annoyed at it. But I think I was rather annoyed at it than that it worried me that they didn't like it. I remember. I was seven years old when I took part-time job apart from the school. And the purpose for this was trying to raise money for all my crazy hobbies. I was building a lot of cottages and stuff in the woods and uh, I was buying computers and stuff and, and, and it costed money. So you, in the other hand, you were passionate about the sailing and you took part-time jobs, You anything you could come over. Was it hard to combine that with your studies, working as well? And where did you get that energy from? I think simply out of the love for what I was doing. I really believe if you do what you love and it makes you happy, then you somehow do get more energy for it. Not always. And of course, it is tiring. And of course, there is moments that you just wonder what on earth you're doing <laughs> and where everyone else is just sitting in the sunshine having a drink or going to a party or just reading a book and you're working away then yeah it is tough but I do tend to just look at what I'm doing it for and the more adventures I've had and the more times I've gone through this process of fighting really hard for something that I really wanted um, the more I know how much it's worth it to actually do it and, and finally to reach the goal. So it's that part, at least, is becoming easier, I find, as I get older, because I, I've come to learn the process where I'm like, I, okay, I've hit a wall again. <laughs> it's going to be tough, but I need to get through this wall. Um, so, it, and in the beginning, of course, it's difficult because you don't know if it's going to be worth it. But yeah, now I know it is. To give some context to my next question, at 
the summer of 2007, you took a boat on a more ambitious six-week sailing tour of the Wadden Sea. Uh, it was accompanied by your dog, Spot. And uh, is, is a dog the perfect company on a boat, on a big, long, durable boat ride? Or is it better to have humans? Uh, uh, humans are probably, it's probably nicer to do humans, I think. So I only took my dog on small voyages. I never took my dog on overnight trips or things like that because he wasn't that fond of sailing anyway. Um, and I just, yeah, you know, I thought I was just sad for him, but I really love the company of a dog. I mean, a dog is just man's best friend, really. You could talk to him. He was always there for me. Um, he was very protective, which is probably one of the only reasons my dad did let me go alone on those very early sailing adventures that I did in the summer uh, holidays back then. So, yeah, back then that that was for sure the best company. Um, it left me to learn at my own pace and do the things I wanted to do and still have a companion. During this um, six-week sailing tour, was it then... You started dreaming about the possibility of making it around the world solo? Um, it was a little bit later, actually. It was when I sailed to England on my own when I was 13. And pretty much on the way back, I was just thinking, okay, so now I've you know sailed in the Netherlands as much as I want to really. I've seen everything that I want to. And I'd sailed to England. Uh, so, of course, I you know, I could have expanded and gone to Scandinavia and all lots of other places. But then I thought, you know, I could do all that, but I can also put the distance behind each other. And then in known time, I will actually be in the Caribbean and, and in the Pacific, which is where I ultimately wanted to go. That was my ultimate dream. And yeah, that's when I decided it made much more sense to do that. And, and this trip to England, that was part of your father's plan for you to gain some experience with the open seas. Uh, and uh, it was in also intended, as far as I'm concerned, to discourage you, uh, the strong currents, rough water, heavy shipping, and, uh, which makes the English Channel notoriously difficult for sailboats. But apparently that did not have the discouraging effect of you. No, actually, my dad didn't know about to crossing to England. Um, I, d I didn't tell anyone. <laughs> So when I was in England, I got picked up by the police and my dad actually had to come over and get me out of uh, out of a childcare home. But that's that's another story. Um, I did have more battles before the big battle on my sailing journeys. But yeah, on the way back, he did say, you know, you sail the boat here. So just sail back on your own. Um, and the weather was really rough on the way back. Uh, so he definitely did hope that it would discourage my um, ocean sailing endeavors. But uh, indeed, it, it did exactly the opposite. I Somehow that was my ticket to freedom and I felt that that's what I needed and wanted to do. So by convincing yourself, you know, succeeding with this, were your father convinced that now that you could complete the around the world voyage yourself or did he need a further proof? I think convinced is <laughs> a, a tough word because he, my parents, neither of them were very happy with the idea of it, but both of them did know me enough that if they would say no, I would do it anyway. That 
that's the kind of child I was. And um, they figured it would just be best to actually help me uh, to go in the safest and most prepared way possible. So, yeah, they, they were definitely not jumping up and down of excitement or completely convinced, I guess. I never really talked about that with them. Definitely not at that stage because they did encourage me in my dreams uh, but especially my dad, I can remember, was very uh, much talking about how hard it would be and how difficult it would be. And if I was really sure I knew what I was getting into, which, you know, of course, I, I had no idea what I was getting into. I'd never done it before. Um, <laughs> but he did really try to describe all the really horrible parts of sailing and to the extent I remember that at some stage when I was at the middle of the ocean in a storm, I thought, oh man, this is not nearly as bad as I thought it would be <laughs> because my dad had just like made horrible pictures of what it would be like. And I thought it was just all really shitty and hard and difficult and that there was nothing nice about it at all. I have no idea why I even left, but um, yeah, it turned out there are nice moments too. That is that is that is so funny. Uh, perhaps his um, discouragement had some positive effect after all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I I just kept thinking like, when is when is that gonna happen? <laughs> and the end effect of that was though that people would say, well, how was it? And I was like, oh, it was great. You know, it was not difficult at all. <laughs> and now I I've sailed about eighty thousand miles, sailed so much, and. I'm thinking, okay, I definitely did experience storms and high waves and difficult things and things that broke. Um, but yeah, you know, it was, I didn't know what to expect. So I thought that was just all part of the deal and it was all fine and I just dealt with it. And yeah. No <laughs> it's big just, deal. It's just all, all fine. No big deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's really funny to think about that now. It's funny. Sometimes when I climb, prominent peaks like Everest and uh, other 8,000 meters, I go back and at the time I was very focused on my 8,000ers. I had a local mountain, which I call King's Mountain. It's Kungsberg in Swedish. And um, it's only 200 meters tall. But the fascinating thing was that for every time I climbed an 8,000 meter peak and I came home, that little hill became closer and closer to a speed bumper. It wasn't even a mountain, then it was a hill. In the end, it almost reminded me of a speed bumper. Somehow I was nested and I was being forged to handle all the adversities and the hurdles. I felt that, not invincible, but I felt that I had blown up the expectations for how horrendous and how hard everything would be. But I came prepared and I was very well trained. So it wasn't such a big deal. So uh, perhaps it's good to be uh, well prepared because then there you can enjoy the journey much more. Uh, that's at least at least my take on it. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. Then finally, in August 2009, the big day, you announced your plan for a two-year solo sailing voyage around the globe in the Dutch national newspaper. 
I'm not sure if I pronounced this right, but Algemen Dagblad. Did I pronounce it wrongly? <laughs> Probably. Uh, in, in Dutch, yeah, right? so exactly. Algemen Dagblad. Uh, something like that. I have to practice. Do you think that making it official acted as a motivation for you? Uh, not giving up on your dreams? Or was it perhaps the other way around that the media attention acted as unnecessary pressure on you? Um, I certainly do think that the uh, pressure from the media was <laughs> uh, weighing yeah, much more on me than the fact of making it making a statement that you're actually going to do it. And then, yeah, of course, that does push you a little bit more to actually doing it. But yeah, then having that whole insane year of comments and media and court cases that was the most discouraging thing ever it was it was insane i mean like pretty much every person on the street that you see telling you that you're gonna die or be kidnapped by pirates or sink or like, the things that i got slingshotted to my head were, were pretty much insane it's it's at some stage i remember i didn't even feel like a person anymore and i think in the eyes of most people i wasn't really seen as a person which you know i think about that it happens a lot to celebrities or, or people known to the public it's yeah you're, it, it's it's just a thing that has happened something to talk about something to have an opinion about and that there's actually a person behind that with feelings that is trying to live a life it, somehow they just forget that <laughs> Um, and that that person may be 13 years old, it's, that's totally forgotten too. So it's, yeah, for me, that was the most insane thing ever. And it honestly took me years to process everything that happens, to realize what an insane race the human species is <laughs> um, and how to actually deal with that, how to not be angry at the media or angry at people who we just blurred out and thought through things without knowing the whole story. I'm still, it's still difficult. But you know, if it if it taught me anything, it taught me to definitely listen to all the sides of a story before being judgmental and to not judge in general because that happens so much to me that yeah, I've become very aware of it. To give people some kind of a context around what you were suffering and what you were experiencing at the time, there was people claimed you for being disillusional, spoiled, arrogant, impulsive. There, there's numerous of very hard criticism and accusations that you received. Some people even wrote that, what an idiotic enterprise, madness, an unacceptable risk. And some people yeah. even go so far to say that they hope, I hope she sinks. I mean, how, how do you, at your age, you said that it took years to process this. I mean, at the time, all you wanted to do is go out and live your dream and your passions for sailing around the world and try if you could do it. And you were having some supportive parents. How, how did you handle that pressure? And that critique, 
Well, I think most important thing really for me was that I was indeed raised with love and raised to follow my heart and to follow my dreams and that the people that I cared about that were close to me believed in me. They believed I could do it. They stood behind me and they supported me and they kept supporting me, you know, especially my dad. He was always there. Um, but for me, it was even harder to see these comments and much harsher comments than to me being slingshotted to my dad. Um, you know, because yes, I was still a child. So obviously it was all his fault. Um, and that to me, that that it was heartbreaking to be honest i i was angry very very angry because my dad is i still believe the absolute best dad in the whole world <laughs> and what he did for me he needed so much more strength than all the strength that i had or that i needed to sail around the world so for people to just call him those names and to say those things man that was yeah that was beyond sad um and I'm I think I kept going purely because of that because it was so wrong because it was so unfair and so unjust uh, I just yeah somehow <laughs> needed to keep going I, I don't follow Greta Thunberg a whole lot but every now and then you see something come by and then the people that have opinions about it and that just like they say mean mean things to her that i think come on she is you know you may not fully agree i don't always fully agree with everything she says but she is a young person that is actually standing up to do something that is actually you know she's brave and she's trying like, why do people have to be so mean? It's it's just beyond comprehension to me. And it still is, but I think I have just laid it aside. And I, I do that still because it's something that, of course, still follows me around. And even though I don't get negative comments anymore now, um, I do know when, when someone comes up to me and says, oh, I've always supported you, <laughs> and someone who actually did, or someone who once was negative, and I just put it to the side. I just live my life. I focus on what I believe in, um, and I, I take my steps. I think if you start looking at the world and what other people have to say or have to think, but then you're lost. Mm. Has anyone apologized to you after you're around the world? voyage no no it is it not so i don't think that's going to happen so that's some room for improvement here human race definitely oh yeah oh yeah for sure yeah i'm trying you say that being in the history books in 100 years from now on does not interest you at all was it unnecessarily evil to please your sponsors by talking to media after all you were experienced in holland with the media hurdle you know, it's the media is a complicated thing. Um, yes, I had a couple of sponsors. And of course, for them, I wanted to do something. Although I have to say the sponsors that I had did it because they just liked what I wanted to do. And they just wanted to help me. And they didn't 
I yeah, of course, some of them wanted to have some media coverage as well, but there were no such contracts or things that I really needed to do because I didn't want that. I wanted to <laughs> do my thing and not be bound to any such thing. But uh, in the beginning, I wouldn't talk to media at all. I just did my own thing, ignored what they had to say. Um, the thing is, if someone or the world wants to hear about a story, the media is going to deliver, whether you want it or not. And they are going to write whatever it takes that people want to hear. So at some stage, things just... They, they just wrote complete nonsense. I would read articles and more than halfway through, I'd actually realize that they were talking about me. <laughs> it was it was so off the charts and correct. So then I realized, okay, I need to say something because otherwise people are just going to like, even like shoot me or something because all this crazy stuff. <laughs> it was just, it was scary. It was scary what they were saying. And I've, it, once again, it just felt so unfair. You know, they didn't take into account that we were a family and, and that we have feelings. And especially for my family, I think I needed to talk and I needed to let them know who I was and what I was doing um, to, to set things straight because it was not fair to my parents how they were treated. And you were alone for the majority of the 518 days on the trip that it took you. For many, being alone is the definition of terror itself. You say it's freedom, not attached to anything. Perhaps you could call yourself an expert living with yourself. And I'm wondering, what advice would you give people who need to learn how to be better at with the company of themselves? I definitely think... Uh, before I get to the advice that learning to live with yourself is really important. It's not that I'm a loner or I would want to be alone all the time um, because I actually do enjoy the company of certain people and um, yeah, I, I like to be in groups as well. You know, what I'm doing right now involves a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of kids and teenagers, so I'm I'm barely ever alone anymore and I'm perfectly happy with that. But it definitely gave me very important insights. You know, if I'm not, if I don't know who I am and if I'm not happy with who I am, how am I going to help anyone else? How am I going to give advice to anyone if I don't even know what on earth I'm doing? So figuring that out should be one of everyone's priorities, I, I think. And it is difficult because when you're all on your own, you are going to run into yourself and you're going to realize that you're not perfect. And and I, I certainly did. You know, I, I hate myself sometimes and I think I do things wrong and I mess things up and I wonder what on earth I'm doing if I make the right decisions. And um, But somehow I'm going to have to deal with that to keep going because there's no one else to blame. There's no one else who can help me. So I have to figure it all out on my own. And that's definitely something that this journey gave me and probably the most important thing. Um, because yeah, knowing about yourself is, is the first step to anything else. Good advice. A completely different question. <laughs> With so many days at the sea, do you get landsick when you finally stomp on solid ground again? 
Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Is that worse than um, being seasick? It's about the same. It feels completely the same, except for it just looks totally stupid because I had it really bad after my 48 days of sailing across the Indian Ocean. And I stepped on land, wanted to walk to the office, um, and it just fell right on my face. I just was not able to walk on a straight dock. I just couldn't do it. I was just crawling back to the boat and <laughs> trying to sit on it because it was laying still and my, my legs were just so used to movement. So it just feels very confusing. It's quite humiliating. <laughs> um, but um, it, it goes really quick. You didn't include that episode in your documentary. No, I think there were a lot of good things not included in the documentary. You've probably seen Monty Python's Ministry of Silly Walks. Maybe that could have resembled what you experienced. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> quite like that. Your dad also said that if you were going to realize your world journey, you had to go figure it out yourself. Do you think that in modern society that people in general take too many shortcuts and expect a paved road to reach their goal? Oh, for sure. And I think it's only getting worse <laughs> because things are getting easier. Um, but it's you need hard things to go through to yeah learn about yourself and fully understand what it is where you're going i think well for example in sailing one need to make a successful journey in my opinion of course you can be lucky and um it, it's not always the case but for me if you want to have a successful journey all the time it's important to know your boat inside and out. So you need to know every nut, every bolt, every wire. You need to know exactly where your tools are. It needs to be completely prepared. That is not something that is going to happen overnight. And I see a lot of people who just buy a boat and go sailing. And they have no idea what they're doing. You know, most of the time they get to the other side, they follow the trade winds, they're fine. When something breaks, they get someone to fix it on the next island. And most of them are okay. But I think if shit does hit the fan, and you do get into a big storm or something does get difficult, then where is your person on land that is going to fix things if you don't know it yourself? Where, uh, Where's all the experience from the people that otherwise you would get to fix your boat or to do all the things for you. So all these little shortcuts. But if you're in the middle of the ocean, no one can do that and you need to do it yourself. So I do think the fact that I did do everything myself from the beginning was a very important preparation. And um, even today, I am still doing the majority of work on the ship myself because I want to know I want to know everything that is being done so of course you know if we well if we had some more sponsors we maybe would be able to pay for people to fix things and and um do things on the boat but I would still always want to be right there I would want to see it I would want to be a part of it because the boat is a part of me and we're making the journey together so yeah shortcuts you're going to miss out on whatever you were going to learn in the in-between line. And it's also a safety measure. I can only speak for myself in my climbing career because lots of people, they want to climb Mount Everest totally untrained and they assume that they can scoot up any mountain unprepared. I go by the saying, check, double check and trouble check. 
And that's a mantra that I've been indoctrinating myself as long as I have been climbing. And that kept me alive because I cannot accept and I cannot relinquish with the thought that if I fail on a mountain and it's due to lack of strength or preparedness or technical ability, that's unforgiving. I should be prepared 2.0 if I go to a mountain. And I always say that, well, the summit is only halfway. You have to get down as well. But I also concur that being able to climb the mountain twice, being that strong and being that fit establishes potential in you that you can handle adversities and consequences that you have not thought of. Because there will always be things that you haven't been able to predict. So my question here is, what was the most unpredictable thing that happened on your voyage? Well, I don't know. Things break, of course, and it's pretty difficult ahead of time to think of everything that could possibly break on a boat because the list would be pretty much unending. Um, so those are always unexpected things and things that I had to deal with. But um, well, one of the most unexpected things was the change of route. So I wanted to go through the Red Sea back home. Um, but it was right in that time that the piracy in the Red Sea was just getting so bad that a yacht on its own could not go through anymore. And I think not much later it was actually uh, banned as well. So I had to completely change my route around. I had to go around South Africa, um, ended up sailing back to the Caribbean. I did something completely different than uh, I had planned in the beginning. You know, I started off sailing in Gibraltar and I remember sitting on top of that mountain thinking, okay, in, you know, in, in a year time or two years time, I'm going to come back from the other side of that mountain. And I never did because <laughs> um, life took me on another so that was probably the the biggest unexpected change and looking back it was it was lovely it was a nice change i'm very happy that it happened but um i, I certainly had to throw things around speaking of which piracy i mean how big of a concern is that on a voyage around the world were you concerned and did you have any steps uh, countermeasures to take or was that just how does one cope with that yeah there's these days, only a couple of areas where piracy is happening. So I could safely say it's pretty much limited to part of Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, uh, the Red Sea. There, it's it's a different kind of piracy there. I mean, they're living off it. They're professional. Uh, it's yeah, that's nothing you want to deal with. If if I'm talking about Indonesia and Papua New Guinea and probably Colombia as well, it's um. It's fishermen, mostly, who are having a side job <laughs> at just raiding boats and, and stealing things. And it's not, definitely not pretty, and it doesn't always end very well. But it is seems to be limited to those areas. So it's fairly easy to go around to avoid those areas altogether. Um, and that's, yeah, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> so now I'm really curious... You're sitting at home and you're figuring out how to circumnavigate the world. How, how do you plan this? Where does one start? Is it Google Earth at the time? Trip reports on internet, books, biographies? How, do, how does one 
plan a route around the world? Um, <laughs> well, it depends. How much on time I got? What you want to see? What you want to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. How much time do I have? Yeah, no, I pretty much followed the trade winds. So I did uh, the easiest route that there is. I sailed with the winds, and um, then I followed largely the route of my parents because of course that's what i yeah was interested in doing um except for they did go through the red sea and and in the end i didn't and going around south africa and through the indian ocean is definitely a fair bit harder and no trade winds anymore um but at that stage i had the experience and the confidence i think that i could do that so it was a good point but um yeah that, that's pretty much how it goes. You look at the season, uh, your time, what you want, and then you go from there. How does a normal day look like on, for instance, the league from Galapagos to Polynesia? What do you do? What happens during 24 hours? It's difficult to say. You know, Quite often at the end of a day at sea, you're wondering what on earth you've done. And you come to the conclusion that it seems pretty much nothing, and yet you been busy the entire day and completely exhausted so i think it ranges from sleeping when i can for sure definitely when i'm alone so when the weather is good when there's no ships around i will be sleeping because i can only sleep an hour at a time max and i have to get up and look around and check everything that that's really interesting so you can only sleep one hour at a time why is that is that because you don't want to hit something you want to check that your direction is right and the sails are right and everything is okay i guess that's 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 the idea behind it yeah that's the main thing so container ships easily go 20 knots and the visibility at sea barely ever is 20 miles so yeah theoretically an hour is just the absolute max that you would go from not actually seeing anything to the horizon to a collision um so it's it's checking for big ships mostly what about your education i understand that it was a conducted through an educational institution that provided you with material for self-learning but you were busy sailing and how did the studies go during your voyage uh so it was actually fairly easy of course during the sailing it was hard you know, boats just bashing around i had books and then you need to have like five books for one subject and it's just all flying around so they didn't work very well uh on the quiet days however i would do it and generally when i was back on land i just needed one or two days to actually catch up on the work that i was doing um and then continue during two to three hours in the mornings so i always did my school in the mornings and then did other stuff in the afternoons either working on the boat or doing something fun on land but um yeah it, it, it's funny if you do self-study how little time you actually need to complete everything you say that on the ocean you learn to stop fighting against everything quote life isn't always fair and neither are the waves and the wind always doing what i want them to so i learned to make the best of it and accept the situation as it is to be happy with what i have at the moment and to respect and appreciate my surroundings. Is it difficult to retain this life lesson once introduced to the hectic lifestyle in cities again? Yes, 
yes, of course, um, it's easy to live simple and free on the ocean, but to do that in a world that is made to run at full speed is very difficult, but I do try my utmost best to actually stay to it. So the real challenges actually occur once you are reintroduced to the society. People get their head around this the other way around. They think that sailing around the world is the hardest part. Perhaps adjusting to our society is the hardest part. Yeah, yeah, I think so, because it's not as natural. <laughs> Humans are still natural beings, and I think if we're, well, yeah, if we're in touch with, with nature and following nature then I, I do think we feel more at ease and peaceful than in a society where everything is just running at full speed and um i'm i'm definitely not against uh, modern technology or anything like that absolutely not i think it has great things but i do think it's really important that we also stay in touch with nature and uh, that we don't forget how to do things without the technology. The technology should definitely just stay a helpful tool rather than taking over the world. And in my opinion, it's taking over a bit. So for me, it's hard adjusting to that. Would you say that after a while, the ocean is calling again and you have to go out to become sane? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to get back to my shelf to find rest. Yeah. It both has nice things. You know, I wouldn't want to stay out at sea forever. <laughs> um, but I definitely do need it sometimes to kind of reset. I guess the trick here is trying to balance those two worlds. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and the oceans also taught you some um, about the extreme fulfillment one can get from fighting through hard times and coming out stronger on the other end. You gained more self-confidence, apparently, on your around-the-world voyage. I remember when I was given an opportunity to participate in a sales school in Auckland, New Zealand. Actually, I was an exchange student in New Zealand. And I was on board of a boat called Spirit of New Zealand. It was about two weeks sailing course. And the company, their slogan was, watch them grow. And they were referring to how the kids, we were at the time, how it would grow in merely just a week or so on a boat. Do you share this sentiment that if you introduce sailing to children and adolescents, that you actually literally, by just watching them, can see them grow? Well, do you think you grew on board the ship? I think I did. I think I somehow grew in the sense that I was feeling more aware of my capacities and following orders and being in charge over an extremely expensive and large boat. It was a humbling quest. So I think I taught me some respect and working together tight with uh, some, you know, strangers that became friends of mine. So in indeed, to answer the question, I think we did. Yeah, because that's, it is what I'm seeing. It's what I do now. It's pretty much like the spirit of New Zealand, except for I think to actually 
achieve something that has a really lasting impact that is so that kids are actually going to remember and be able to hold on to it needs to be a bit longer than two weeks so we sail for six months and they can join up for either seven weeks or the whole six months but um i I definitely do see them grow and and even in just a few weeks they just the teamwork the communication the respect for other people and it yeah it's quite amazing you say that quote showing the coming generation what this world has to offer and how they can be a strong part of it i often get in contact with distraught and confused adolescents they seeking my advice and i often give them three types of instruction for a healthy and prosperous life and the first one is travel and the second one is learn a new language and the third one is face your fears what would be your three guiding principles? Those are really good. Um, I, I definitely always say, just do it. You know, if you never do it, you will never know. And just think about the worst thing that's going to happen. And if that's not destroying someone else's life or your own, then what's holding you back? Um, and... Yeah, I I, af- I absolutely agree with with travel and and seeing new cultures because it teaches a lot about that you can be yourself because every culture is so different and you don't have to do it the way they do it in the town that you grow up or doing something different in your life can be very cool and I think yeah getting t- doing something on your own to actually get back to your own roots and who it is that you are something that I picked up when I got to know about your stories that you said that you learned a lot about yourself and that you had time to think, I can imagine, uh, without the distraction from the mainland, you say, there are just some of the wonderful gifts the ocean and the people I met along the way have given me. I really can connect and relate to this as a mountain climber. And many of the sluggish hours I spend indefinitely trotting upwards on giant 8,000 meter peaks. Uh, Of course, I'm very super focused on every step I take, but well inside the tent where we spend considerable amount of time just melting snow, as I said, and waiting until next day's climb, I have time to think. I think a lot. With all this excess time to think, what do you think about during the long stretches on the oceans? Oh, many, many things. Oh, I don't know, it varies from wondering what's all swimming underneath my boat to just processing things that happened in my life or um, thinking ahead. I don't, you know, if I think about next adventures or something, I'm not planning it out exactly because when, yeah, plans are there to change anyway. Um, But I, I do think about the things that I would want them in my life and most importantly if I'm if I were to die or something and I I'm starving like it's just dying I'm thinking what would I have want to have done with my life what is it that I want people to remember or what is it that I want to give further um I, I do think about those things or how I would react to certain things. But I also think about what am I going to do if this breaks on my boat or if that breaks on my boat? What am I going to do if I hit a container? It, it just varies. It's like, <laughs> it's just one big ball of wire. <laughs> do 
during the crossing over the Atlantic Ocean, you entered a phase where your mind was jubilant. You couldn't eat for two days, you said, and you started missing your dad at home tremendously. What was going around inside yourself? Yeah, so that was actually um, right when I started. It was the journey from Gibraltar to the Canary Islands. And um, yeah, that first week of sailing was really hard because I'd come out of this completely hectic world of court cases and media and battles and preparing the boat and um, to suddenly being completely alone on the ocean. And that that was just such a huge shock to the system, I think. Um, yeah, so at the one hand, I was completely happy and I was so full of joy. At the same time, of course, I was missing my dad. I was learning how to deal with everything. Uh, I was being thrown into a new world. So I, I had pretty much every emotion at the same time, which feels very strange. <laughs> but it's, yeah, as the days go by, you settle into a routine and... Yeah, and then I actually arrived in the Canary Islands, and I realized, okay, I, I did it. You know, I, I, got the first leg down, and, um, and that felt really good. Gave me a lot of encouragement to keep going and just try the next leg and try the one after that. And <laughs> I always just looked at the next voyage. I have a dear friend of mine, Roger Nilsson, who once said that. When things are tough, the only way out is through. So facing it instead of trying to repel it, it's the greatest advice I had when it comes to experiencing suffering. Uh, can you relate to that? Yes, absolutely. It's the way I have been brought up. And um, so far, it's always worked for me. And then you came to the Panama Canal and that acted as your point of no return because now it was final and uh, something happened happened because now you entered the Pacific Ocean and there was a complete different sense. At least that's what I can interpret when I see your documentary. Something happened to you. What was that? Yeah, it was somehow a point of no return because the Panama Canal is expensive. So I could go through it, but I couldn't really go back. Um, and from the Atlantic, you can sail back to Europe very easily and once you're into the Pacific and that the trade winds just keep going so beating upwind back is that's just senseless um, and the Pacific was my ultimate goal it's what I really wanted to see where I really wanted to go um, and I did feel a lot of peace there and the islands were really peaceful the people were just so lovely um, the weather was actually being really nice as well, and I was um, mentally in a very good place. So, yeah, the Pacific Ocean for me was by far my favorite for all those reasons. Nobody said life was going to be easy, someone said. And a famous Swedish writer called August Strindberg, he once wrote that life is nothing for amateurs. What was the hardest part of your journey? Leaving. <laughs> actually setting sail and I think that's true for any endeavor the first couple of steps are the most difficult to actually say okay I'm going to do it I'm going to go um, sailing wise 
the Torres Strait and the Indian Ocean. But on the Indian Ocean, I was also mentally in a really good place. And so I somehow didn't care so much about the knockdowns and the storms and the calms. And I had two weeks of absolutely no wind. And that, yeah, that is just insane. It just drives you crazy, really. You're just floating about, going nowhere. It's hot and or drizzling for an entire week and everything is just flapping so it's not if there's no wind it's not like the boat is just laying still and you can just enjoy whatever nice drink in the cockpit or something now you're actually rolling from side to side and the sails are either flapping or when you take the sails down you're rolling even more and so you can't lay still in your bed and you can't cook anything it's worse than being in a storm it's absolutely horrendous um so yeah, no we no wind was for me mentally the most challenging thing, but because I was in a very good place mentally, I think it somehow didn't turn out that difficult for me that time. But I would say if I'm not very in a very happy place and I would get into two weeks with no wind, that could just yeah, that could definitely trip one up. Pivoting back to Holland, you say that the most important thing in people's life is earning money, raising a family, getting a house, getting kids, and then die. Sounds very fatalistic. Can't stop from laughing when I hear this. Uh, I somehow, one part of me, a younger part of me says that I do concur with your generalization. Uh, and it's almost like if life is a destination for the majority of people and, and not a journey in itself. But I'm wondering here, I think this also relates to the Swedish dream. I mean, the Holland dream is not so far off. But is the Holland dream so scary? Yeah, good question. I I think most people are actually happy with it. <laughs> and that's that's the thing, big thing. People don't want to be uncomfortable. They don't feel the need to learn uh, or to grow themselves. They're just perfectly happy with the house and the car and the kids um and you know when i was a kid which is when i said that I, I, this sentence is for me when i was about 14 or 15 years old um and i could not understand i could not understand why people would do that and i thought they must just all be under an hypnotic spell or something to to follow this or to do this that they were like being robots um because i i simply could not understand how that could make you happy but i i know now that there are a lot of people who are actually happy with it and that's perfectly fine um and and i also know by now that i cannot be happy with it that i do need to challenge myself that I do need to keep learning and I need to keep doing the things that I believe in that need to get done <laughs> um and that's that's my way that that's the way I get happy and I also know that that's not for everyone and that's okay so is normal boring then or are there some consolation to seek in an average Joe life yeah no I think there's some consolation um, for me, it would be boring. Yes, I would I would be bored out of my mind. I wouldn't be able to do it. I lived for three months in a house and I thought I was going to die. I told my partner, you're going to sell this house now. We're going to buy a boat or I'm just going to leave. 
So we bought a boat, obviously. Um, but um, for me, it would be, yes. But I don't think it's like that for most people. Do you remember Bilbo Baggins in the book Hobbit, who lived comfortably in Shire? Yes. And then Gandalf, suddenly, the wizard Gandalf showed up one day and gave him a little kick in the butt. And he ventured out with some dwarfs to the desolation of the dragon Smog. And uh, he... <laughs> He he was fairly comfortable in his little bag end, but uh, there was something in him, some inert that pulled him gravitational towards this adventure. And that's what I feel when I meet a lot of people, that there is a very subtle gene that is not so thoroughly expressed in people, but they shine up a little bit when you talk about adventures and, and then they have all yeah. the kind of excuses that, well, I'm too old or no, I have a daytime job now, or I have children. And instead of in the SWOT analysis, talking about the opportunities, they talk about the threats. And that is something that is very common to navigate in that process. Do you have any, hints or recommendations for people how to navigate around instead of focusing on the threats instead of focusing on the opportunities i i you know i think that is a very interesting topic because yes of course the the normal life where yeah you're working a daytime job and you have a car and a house and kids and then you're gonna die that that is totally fine if you're happy with it. But that's the essence, isn't it? A lot of people aren't happy with it. And they do feel like there is more in life and they do want to keep evolving and they do want to keep learning and they do want to travel, but they don't know how because they're stuck. They're stuck in a system that is made to do exactly what most people are doing um, because that is the easiest way. It's easy to get stuck in that system. Um, and that is also why I'm doing what I'm doing now, um, because I think it's important that, especially when you're young, so that's why I'm sailing with kids and teenagers mostly, um, to learn that there are other options, that you do not have to do that if you don't want to do it, because it really is implied, I think, that that's the way you need to live. <laughs> And, um, you know, fair enough, if you have never seen anything else, then how should you know there is anything else? And it would be immensely scary to leave everything behind that you've ever known. So your, your full-time job and the house and all the securities that people think they have to just go out and travel and to actually do something that is going to make you happy. But it is important because... If people keep doing that and they're not happy, then you know what what have you reached in the end of your life? You've just paid taxes and not been happy. <laughs> it just seems so senseless to me. I'd much rather have a hard life with a lot of hard working, but also to have very happy and very joyous moments in between and memories to to bring with me or to share. Um, but I, I have seen how difficult it can be to break out of that and to actually have 
there's no perfect piece of advice I think that is going to help anyone other than be brave just do it do break out of it do follow what's in your heart you know if you don't feel you're happy and you don't feel like you fit into that routine then try something else and and, and do it and again if if the worst think about the worst thing that could happen and if that's not dying or injuring or really hurting someone else's life then yeah how bad can it be <laughs> it's I, I think and it's worth it absolutely but for me um experiences memories people journeys are always worth more than possessions than my boat than things i can have than money than because those are just things things that are going to pass on and i know that i i care a lot for my ship you know i'd be devastated if something happened but yeah it's i, I would still choose the memories that i could have and and the lessons that i could learn anytime over any security that i could have to to keep all my possessions I think that many resonates with being trapped in the squirrel wheel and uh, the perpetual tasks every day and feel a bit frustrated. But here's a quote from Jorge Luis Burgess. He, he says that if I could live again my life in the next, I'll try to make more mistakes. I won't try to be so perfect. I'll be more relaxed. I'll take fewer things seriously. I'll take more risks, I'll take more trips, I'll watch more sunsets, I'll climb more mountains, I'll swim more rivers, I'll go to more places I've never been, I'll eat more ice, I'll have more real problems than less imaginary ones. If I could live again, I will travel light. If I could live again, I'll try to work bare feet at the beginning of spring till the end of autumn. I'll watch more sunrises if I have the life to live. I think that summons up it pretty well. Yeah, yeah, it does. I, I used way to make to describe exactly that. That was just but, perfect. But these are words, yeah. and I think everyone can agree. I don't think we will have so many opponents disagreeing, but how do you bridge the knowing-doing gap? I mean, you are in, in, inherently a doer, and being a doer talking to people who might listen to this podcast who maybe are dreamers and they are frustrated there. They're, they're, they, they, they're feeling their urge. They're feeling that if I only could make that step, if you would give some kind of advice to become a more of a doer, uh, what would you say? I would say take one step at a time. Don't look at the whole thing. It's too overwhelming. Um, but start with something something small and something that you care about something that that lays in your heart where you're going to be happy with and and do that and then see how that turns out and then do another thing but even for me if i look at whole projects it's way too overwhelming and way too much so i i take little steps and yes i am a doer and i 
I'm not afraid to jump into the deep. So I can only imagine what it would be like for someone who isn't a doer and who is a dreamer and for who it would be even much more difficult to do something like that. So I do think it's important to really do it, but just start small so you get the hang of what it's like to do something and do it successfully. So it's more important to do something small successfully than do something big half. That is wonderful advice. Beautifully put, Laura. Then jumping forward, it was quite an assembly and occasion when you finally arrived at St. Martin and finished your trip. Your dad was there, your sister and mom was there. How did it feel? Um, very strange. I wasn't ready for the trip to be over. And, you know, there was, again, a lot of media, a lot of people. And differently from when I left, they were actually cheering me on this time. They were actually happy for me. And um, it was all a very happy occasion. But in my mind, I had not processed all of the craziness that had happened beforehand. And I was not ready for it. I was not ready for all those people. I was not ready for the cameras. Not ready for like I was really living in my own world still. I was blocking all of that out. So um, as joyous as the occasion may have been for my family and for all the people watching and as happy as they may have been, it was it was terrifying. Um, and I, I I did not like it much. It didn't feel like the end for me. Because I had decided that I was going to keep sailing to New Zealand anyway. Um, it wasn't about the record. So yeah, it sailed around the world. But somehow I didn't care much about that fact. I cared much more about what I had actually learned. And that I could now continue <laughs> to keep sailing without people following me around. Or at least I thought, um, you know, I then learned that once you're in the news, people do stay interested and somehow you, I'd learned to live with that. Um, but that was certainly the next hurdle that I had had to come overcome because it's something that I found very difficult. Probably one of the most difficult things of the whole sailing around the world endeavor that the, the, the whole media and, and yeah, being in the picture thing. So to say it short, the, the arrival, I didn't care much for it. I was incredibly happy to see my family again. I enjoyed the time I had with them, but I felt very much a caged animal. Again, coming out of freedom. That's why you decided to continue your voyage. In fact, you didn't do one circumnavigation. You did 1.5. Isn't that correct? Yes. <laughs> Yes, I did. I continued sailing to New Zealand. And that's where your home is now, New Zealand? Yes, it is what I do consider my home. Although uh, last year we bought the ship that we currently sail with in the foundation in France. And we've been refitting it in the Netherlands. We've been sailing over the Atlantic Ocean. And now we are in a refitting time again um, in Europe. So, yeah, the last two years I've been spending a lot of time in Europe. I, I did go back to New Zealand once, but it's awfully difficult now with a whole quarantine and a lockdown and it's expensive. So, um, 
yeah, once again, I would say home is on Guppy. Wherever Guppy is, is my home. Tell us about the foundation that you're working with now. You're currently working with some nonprofit or child education program with sailing. How's that coming along? Yeah, so that's much more fun. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I had this idea for a long time that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I worked for a couple of schools in the outdoor education, and I just really love that. And quite often I think, man, I wish I could just take these kids and send them through a storm or just take them on the boat with me for a while because there's so much to be learned. Um, and then I slowly started to actually set that up. And um, well, I, I think I, I started thinking about this back in 2014 or 15 or something. And um, last season is the first season that we actually did uh, a full Atlantic round trip. So we sailed six months and took along nine teenagers on the journey. And it's, uh, it's great. We bought a ship last year. We've refitted it. And I have named her Guppy again to the confusion of everyone. <laughs> but um, painted her red as well. <laughs> so yes absolutely confusing but from why break a good habit yeah yeah exactly for me it was important i needed to uh, keep my boat in memory i needed to somehow keep her sailing i needed to i needed guppy to do what she was meant to do which is sailing with teenagers um so yeah if it can't be that boat then it will be this boat and uh it's it's been really really good it's been great um I just absolutely love it. I think I'm doing everything that I want. I'm sailing. I'm maintaining my boat. I'm sailing with children, with teenagers. I'm seeing them go through hard times. I'm seeing them go through the same things that I went through. Uh, so I'm able to actually help them because I recognize the things. And um, yeah, it's, it's so fulfilling. It's really hard because I run the foundation mostly together with my partner. So it's just the two of us maintaining the boat, running everything. Uh, we get some outside help every now and then, but most of it we, we do ourselves. And uh, most of it is voluntarily hours where we're just sitting until midnight, uh, <laughs> either during stuff on the computer on the boat or and then we also have our son of course who is now two and a half and uh actively helping us further into the ditch most of the time but um it's really great to have around and he also comes on the trips which is also very nice so he is growing up the way i want him to grow up and um i am very happy so there's still heaps of hurdles um it's it's really expensive to run a ship like this and to find the funding is difficult we've managed so far but the corona whole thing definitely hasn't helped uh because suddenly it's pretty much impossible to find sponsors and um we did a lot of out, out of our own pockets but that's totally fine i think it's for me, it's still the most important thing that I am actually doing what I want to do. And it feels absolutely right. And um, to see the impact that it has for us both to see what it did that what we believe in actually works. Um, of course, it's very satisfying. 
And speaking of your son, the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree, does it? So we can expect another sailor as born? Oh, I have no idea. Um, you know, he, he could grow up and, and do something completely different. I have no idea. Um, so far, he seems to like the sailing, which I'm happy with because, you know, the, the next couple of years or at least probably until he's 13 or 14, he's going to be stuck with it. Um, <laughs> so it's good that he enjoys it at least. But no, I'm not going to um, force him to sail or anything. It's uh, I, I will encourage him to do whatever it is he wants to. And if that's something completely different, then that's fine with me. But uh, I, I do like the way he is growing up now. He's especially in the groups with the kids and he's learning and helping and seeing things. It's uh, it's very encouraging. It's very nice to see him grow like that. So if you could pick the Pacific Ocean, the Indian Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean, which one do you favor most? A Pacific without second thought. Um, most beautiful by far for me. Which one has most character? The Indian Ocean. Now, that is just one hell of a difficult ocean to sail through. Um, it can throw unexpected things at you every day and it changes all the time. It's rough and therefore also incredibly beautiful. But uh, I, I probably learned the most sailing and the most about myself on that ocean. That's for sure. But the Pacific was most beautiful. One item that you can't leave at home when you go sailing. Except for all the necessary things. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that's a really good question. I generally don't go anywhere without my laptop, but, but that's merely a necessity for me. So I, I, I guess like that's kind of I mean weather reports and uh, lots yeah. emailing and stuff and I yeah work. exactly. So that doesn't count. Yeah, so yeah, that doesn't really count. Um, hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I, don't I think really in mountains, I, 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 can, I can speak for myself. Something that I always bring with, it's very important. And that's a postcards of wood anemone. And it's my favorite flower. It's white and it grows in clusters. And they, they flourish during this little time in the spring. And the entire floor in the forest is covered with these white flowers and it's absolutely mind-bending and it's so beautiful so exquisite i actually have this wild dream of when i'm 105 years old or something and, and i'm retired from life i'll just lay on a bed of wood anemone and, and i'll just you know sleep and uh, i'll pass away uh, that's how I romanticize about me passing to the next life. But, but what it does is that in the mountains or most places I go to, the giant peaks, 8,000 meter peaks, there aren't any vegetation to speak of. There aren't any grass or vegetation or flowers. It's just you know, rocks, ice, and snow and moraine. But having these postcards in my tent reminds me that there's a world apart from climbing this peak 
So it's a reminder about the life that awaits me when I get put back home. And uh, it's as simple as that, this postcard. Interesting. Yeah, so I don't really have anything that specific, but I guess for me it would be music. Um, I really love playing my guitar and the violin. So I drag my violin everywhere around the world, and it's I'm not a really good player or anything. <laughs> um, but it's mostly for myself. It's it's another place where I can find peace, which is not on the ocean. So it's um yeah, music is important for me. And mostly making music myself then. So if you could relive one moment from your world trip, which moment would this be? <sighs> I would say French Polynesia. Yeah. Yeah, just the French Polynesian islands. Sail through there again as a fifteen year old. <laughs> Do you have any new sailing trips in the loop apart from uh, the Atlantic education program? Yeah, not really because this is pretty much full time right now. Um, Next month we'll have 10 days of sailing in the Dutch and German Baden-Insel. And then in November, of course, the next six months of sailing around the Atlantic Ocean. But I do definitely still plan i've been saying this for years has not gone out of my mind it's actually only become stronger want to go to patagonia and antarctica but this ship is not the ship for it she's not made for those waters and i'm not going to take her there so in order for that to happen and i want to do it with my own boat i've been there on another boat but needs to be my own boat um, I will have to build the boats that I have designed, which is definitely still in my planning. Um, I just have no idea how I'm going to do it. <laughs> I have no idea where I'm going to the money or how I'm going to build it. Um, so that's that's to be seen. That's to be concluded. I, I don't know yet. But it's certainly always there lingering in my head. And I think... Somehow subconsciously, I will be moving towards it, and it's going to, it's going to happen. I'm sure, somehow. <laughs> we started with talking about Pippi, as you remember, and I think she also said something similar to, "How difficult can it be? Just do it," as you say. Right. Oh, it's going to be tough. I know that already. It's going to be huge hurdles in the way, but I'll just have to overcome them somehow. Mm. If you could give some advice to people who would like to sail around the world, what would you? If you would like to give, if you would be, if you would give some advice to people who would like to sail around the world, what would that be? Uh, test out if you like it first. <laughs> Maybe rent a boat or sail across an ocean with someone else. Because uh, I see too many people who sail across an ocean and divorce after that. Um, can be pretty tough um and prepare just prepare 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 know your boat um and 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 learn but don't learn through books and seminars and things like that learn by doing actually just go sailing even if it's just a day take little sailing classes go sailing in little dinghies or doesn't really matter but i think sailing is absolutely best learned through doing so start with that (laughs) Any last words you want to share? Oh, 
I don't know. I think I've definitely shared a lot of my <laughs> thoughts and philosophies, whether people agree with or not. Um, and it's a funny thing because even those things that I believe in firmly now may be different in 10 years time, right? Because I might have learned different things, but that's, that's how I see the world now, just as it's different now than 10 years ago, although it's largely the same. Okay, so I'm straying off topic again because I don't really know what I want to share right now. Um, I think mostly it's just going to be the thing that that I believe in the most, which sounds cliche, but like follow your heart, follow your dreams and, and actually do it. Don't just be dreaming about it. Just take those steps. And I, I think doubt, it's a, it's a quote and I forgot who's it from, but it says doubt kills more dreams than failure ever will and it's so true and it's such a shame and for every adult out there please encourage your kids to be themselves and to follow their dreams as well as crazy as it may be you know if your child wants to be an astronaut who are you to tell them that it's an unachievable thing they may never become an astronaut and they may never get there. And you may already know that. But by telling them that right now already, they're just you're you're basically already killing every dream they will ever have. Because everything they come up with is just going to be said that it's crazy and unachievable and that they should just do something normal <laughs> or easier. So it I, I think for for any adult out there. <laughs> It's important to encourage the younger generation to actually follow the things they want to do, even if it does sound crazy and you do already know it's not going to happen. It, it's still important for them to believe in themselves and to get into the path that they actually need to get on. Laura, it's been an outermost pleasure having you on this podcast. If people want to learn more about you and your work, where should they turn to? Um. They could go to our website, which is the Laura Decker World Sailing Foundation.com, um, or visit us on Facebook under the same name or Instagram. So just Laura Decker World Sailing or Laura Decker World Sailing Foundation. And then you'll find what we're doing now. Fantastic.